This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. I just want to say welcome. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I will be guiding us through the rest of our morning together. Uh, And I want you to think with me as we start our discussion today. Think with me about the time you had that conversation about Santa Claus. You know what I'm talking about, not... Now, what's he going to give you this year? The, the other conversation. I'm trying to look around, trying to scan the audience. Okay, um, I'll be discreet. I'll be discreet, moms, because uh, a couple of you have your little ones. Think about that conversation. Now, up until you had that conversation, you know what I'm talking about. Up until you had that conversation, you and I had a pretty good working relationship with Santa Claus. Christmas Eve would come, and we would give him milk and cookies. And if we lived in, you know, Katadi, we'd give him carrots and hummus because <laughs> we wanted him to be organic and get healthy. It was kind of us. And in exchange, he would give us something that we really wanted. It was a good working relationship. Our belief in Santa affected our actions towards Santa. We need to keep the big guy happy so the big guy would give us the things that we really wanted on that most sacred day, the day that Santa Claus brought presents. I remember the day that Santa Claus let me down, and he let me down big time. Uh, I can't remember my age, but this was the year that Santa Claus gave me sweatpants. <laughs> sweatpants. And as a kid, I'm thinking to myself, with all, with all the elves you have at your disposal, that's the best you can do? Sweatpants, really? But it got worse. Not only did Santa Claus really let me down by giving me sweatpants, when he had all those elves with those little tiny fingers who can make wonderful toys, he gave me the wrong size sweatpants. <laughs> I couldn't even wear them. But it got worse the day that my mother said, we're going to go exchange those sweatpants for the right size sweatpants. And I thought to myself, fantastic, we're going to make a trip to the North Pole. Excellent idea, mother. So we hopped in the Aerostar, and we started driving. And I'm thinking, well, North Pole should be north, and yet we're driving south. Maybe we're going to see the naughty elves. And, and we're driving, and, we're, and we get to Box Variety Store in downtown Glendora, California. And I'm thinking to myself, of all the places that Santa could make his presence, I didn't know he worked in Glendora. So I, I inquired of my mother, Mother, not only has Santa Claus let me down in a pretty extreme way, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little frustrated with him for giving me sweatpants, not even cool ones, not even like MC Hammer pants, sweatpants. They're the wrong size, and now you're telling me he shops at Box Variety Store? Mom, what is going on with Santa Claus? And that's when, and, and as a child, this is what I remember, and I've got the microphone, so I get to talk. This is when my mother, I'm pretty sure her head spun three or four times in circles, and like fire came out of her ears, and she said that phrase, you know, there is— And then we, you know, you know, you know. Here's what I didn't do. Here's what I didn't do that next Christmas Eve. You know what I didn't do? I didn't give Santa milk and cookies. Because my thoughts had changed about Santa Claus. When my thoughts changed, my actions followed. And then it got worse. I thought to myself, well, if this is the deal with him, what about all of his super friends? You know, like the big bunny who gives chocolate. What about that guy? What about, what about the tooth fairy? I've got a lot of teeth, and I'm hoping to make some money. See, the, the, the block started to topple, and my world came crashing down because I had, I had believed a certain thing, and I had acted in accordance with my beliefs. And then as beliefs begin to shift, our actions tend to shift with them. And so we're starting this new series that we're calling re re Think it. Rethink it. 
Because we're going to talk about some things over the next seven weeks that we've all thought about. We're going to talk about some topics that we have ideas and opinions and notions, some of us convictions, some of us strongly held convictions about these different topics. And I'm going to ask us to to keep our brains turned on and simply rethink those things with this one question. What if, get ready, this is a big one. What if God is right? And some of us are new to church, so this is a new question for us. And, and if you're new to New Life, I want you to know, man, we created this place for you, for people to honestly seek after God, to explore uh, their spirituality in a way that would lead them to who we believe is the God who loves them with an incredible love. That is why we created this place. That's why we say we'll do anything short of sinning to knock down every wall to, to get you in. That's why we say bring your coffee, kick off your shoes, have fun. We don't care if the floors are stained with coffee. We want you to engage with God. So we said, well, what are some topics we'd like to talk about? And I thought, I remember three years ago, we, we surveyed the church, and we asked you, if you could hear one sermon on one topic, what would it be? And the response was amazing. You guys gave us all sorts of questions and thoughts and topics that you wanted to talk about. So I pulled up those, and I grabbed the seven biggest topics. And here's the thing about all of those topics. None of us wrote down those questions because we had no opinions about them. We wrote down those questions because we wanted to know what God said about them. Because we believe that when we think certain things, our thoughts affect the way that we live. So we're going to start big. We're going to get really big and talk about some big picture stuff. And then as the weeks go on, we're going to narrow down into some very specific topics and say, what does God think about that? I know what I think about it. I know what my family thinks about it. I know what our culture thinks about it. I know what I was raised to believe about it. I know what my professor taught me about it. But what does God, what does God think about it? And we're doing it because of one verse that we looked at in our last teaching series that has struck me. And my hope would be that as we continue to think about this and chew on this verse, we memorize it and it sinks from our head into our heart and changes the way that we act. And it's this verse that Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, don't conform to the patterns of this world. Don't, don't think what you think because that's what you've always thought. Don't think what you think because that's what everybody else has always thought. Don't conform. Don't, don't, uh, don't be a cookie cutter on a conveyor belt that looks just like everybody else, thinks like everybody else. He says, Christians— Jesus followers, turn your brain on. Don't conform. Instead, be transformed. Be changed. Be made new by the renewing of your mind. And then he says, if you do that, you'll be able to, to approve what God's will is. That his will, which is good and pleasing and perfect, you will know the will, the mind, the heart of God. And the idea of transforming and renewing simply means this, that we would take off some old thinking and we would put on some new thinking asking this question, could God be right? Could God be right? So I'm going to ask us to bring in, bring in all of our thoughts, bring in all of our preconceived notions, bring in what we learned, but leave some space for one question, could God be right? And today I want to talk about one of the big ones, big picture. This week and next week, we're going big, big picture. This week, we're going to talk about the most controversial book that's ever been written. Next week, we're going to talk about the most controversial person who's ever lived. So this week, I want to talk about this book right here, the Bible. And I know some of you thought to yourself, does Kevin actually own a paper Bible? Because all you ever see me carrying around is my iPad. I do actually own this. It's, it's, it was sitting on my desk. It's very exciting. It has like pages, and you can flip on it. Have you seen these before? They're amazing. They're amazing. This is a Bible. This is the Bible. I'm going to hold this today. It's a big one. I'm going to get a workout. Woo! More people have argued about this book 
have fought about this book, have have torn the pages out of this book, have burned this book, more nations have tried to destroy this book, have done atrocities in the name of this book than any other book that has ever been written. And yet this book is still around. So we have to talk about this book because on the other side of it, more governments have been founded because of this book. More people's lives have been changed because of the God they found in this book. More families have been saved because of the teachings taught in this book. Ethics have been formed because of the values of this book. Cultures have been shifted because of the ideas found in this book. Injustices have been restored and fixed because of the people who followed the teachings and the God of this book. And I can tell you this beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know this about you because you're not that different from me. Whether you've read this book cover to cover a hundred times, or you've skimmed it a little bit, or you've never even cracked the pages. Every single one of us has a thought about this book. And I want you to write down right now on your teaching notes, what's your thought about this book coming in? So grab your teaching notes. There's some space right there. Question one is, what do I think about this book? Just write down. No one's going to look. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. You're not going to, don't look at your spouse or your neighbor. Just, Just write down. What do I think about this book? What are my thoughts coming in about this book? And if you don't have a teaching notes, that's okay. Just think, what, what do I think about this book? Bill Hybels, who is a brilliant pastor, preacher, teacher, leader in Illinois, so that one day he was driving down the road and he heard uh, on a talk show about religion, he heard a caller call in and the caller said this exact phrase, and I want you to hear this. He said, anyone, anyone who has read the Bible, so all of us, anyone who has read the Bible knows that it's full of three things. It's full of bad history, worse science, and terrible psychology. He says, you just know this. If you've read the Bible, you know it's full of bad history, worse science, terrible psychology. He says, sooner or later, smart people, so if you're smart, you're going to figure this out, and the whole thing is going to go away. Anyone knows who's read this book that it's full of bad history, worse science, and terrible psychology? And sooner or later, smart people, so if you're smart, you're smart. Sooner or later, smart people are going to figure that out, and this whole thing is going to go away. And I heard that quote, and I thought to myself, you know what? I actually think that people in our community are trending towards that way of thinking about the Bible. I would say that that's actually what many people think, and maybe even some of us in that room. Maybe some of us heard that, and we thought at least one of those three. Yeah, I, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. If not you, if not you, Definitely one of the people that live on your street. Definitely one of your coworkers. Definitely someone in your extended family. That's why they say never talk about religion at dinner. Because of our opinions and thoughts and ideas about this book. And then I realized we, we, Pastor Ron and myself and anyone who's on our teaching team, we teach out of this book every single Sunday. And if people think that this book is bad history, worse science, and terrible psychology, then we have a problem. Then the things we teach become nothing more than self-help, and self-help only helps to an extent. That's why they keep writing self-help books, because you only get so far with a certain one. You got to get to 
a new one. So my goal for today is not to, to nerd out about facts and proofs of the Bible. If you're one of those like dorky people like me who like that kind of stuff, great. I'm going to give you a book you can read that will totally help you to nerd out about it. It's bigger than the Bible about the Bible. So you got to get excited about that. My goal for today would be this, that you would leave here having a confidence that you can base your life, your marriage, your ethics, your family, your, your, your job choice, your parenting, and ultimately your eternity on this book. So I, what I want to do is I want to examine those three claims that that person made in his, uh, in his call into the radio show, that the Bible is bad history, worse science, and terrible psychology. Because while the Bible is not primarily a history book, a science book, or a psychology book, if we really think that it's it's bad history, worse science, and terrible psychology. We've got, we've got something to look at. So before we start, though, I want to ask, what does the Bible claim about itself? And I promise I'm not going to use the Bible to try to prove the Bible, because if you don't believe in the Bible, that doesn't really help you. But what does the Bible claim about itself? Because what something claims about itself is important, and it shapes our expectations of it. I claim to be a Christian and a Christian pastor. That's why you would expect that when you come in here, I would teach out of this Bible. But if I claim to be a a Buddhist guru, you would not expect me to teach out of the Bible. What I claim about myself impacts what I do. So what the Bible claims about itself has some impact. And this is what Paul says about the Bible. He says, and Paul wrote in the Bible in one of the letters called 2 Timothy to a young pastor, and he said this about the Bible. All scripture, that means the Bible, is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And we learned in our last series, righteousness is right living with God. It's living in a way that at the end of your life, you can say, ah, I'm satisfied. It's living with a life that has a deep joy that transcends your circumstances because we're living in relationship with God. Training in righteousness, verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped to do every good work. So the Bible claims about itself that it is completely all God-breathed. That means literally that it's inspired by God. That is a huge claim for a book to make about itself. No other book has said this is God-breathed, inspired book, word of God. Take it, all of it, every single part has to be true. Except the Bible. The Bible says that. If the Bible is true, then we would expect the Bible to be good history, good science, and good psychology. So, we're going to go through each of those claims, and I don't want you to write your answer until after we're done talking about that section. But the first claim was the Bible is bad history. So is the Bible good history or bad history? Is the Bible good history or bad history? And I left you a blank. At the end, I want you to fill it in. How, how would you know what good history is? How would you find out the answer to that question? Do you know what makes something bad history? I was a, I was a history major in my undergrad, so I want to tell you a few of the things that make something bad history. I'm going to read you a few statements that are all bad history. First service, I said, I'm going to read you a statement, and you tell me if it's good history or bad history. And I read the first statement, and, and there was a smattering of good and bad. I'm not going to try to do that this time, because we need to uh, study our history, but that's a different sermon. So th- I'm just going to tell you, this is bad history. The question is, why? That's the question you're trying to answer. Why is this bad history? Okay, Operation Desert Storm was a military operation carried out in northern Africa by coalition and armed forces from more than a dozen countries led by the United States. Is that good history or bad history? Bad history. Good. Why? It it didn't happen in northern Africa. The geography is wrong. Good history should have good geography. History that has wrong geography is bad history. Here's another one. Operation Desert Storm began on December 25th, 2001. 
Good history or bad? Bad, good, okay, we've established that. Why? Wrong date. It didn't happen in 2001. Uh, I was going to ask, when did it happen? But I don't want to... The three. Hey, look at that. Some of you guys know. Look at that up front. We got some teachers up in the house. It happened January 17th, 1991. How about this one? Operation Desert Storm was in response to Iraqi Prime Minister Fidel Castro's recent invasion of Kuwait. <laughs> Why is that wrong? Wrong people. Wrong people. Yeah, it wasn't Fidel Castro. How about this one? Um... Operation Desert Storm was considered a failure by some citizens of the U.S. because the armed forces of Saddam Hussein proved far superior to those of coalition forces. We live in Sonoma County. We're like, I don't know what I should say. (laughs) Was it a good war or a bad war? Just war? I don't know. It's wrong because the storyline is inaccurate. Coalition forces were not dominated by Saddam Hussein. We know by the length of the war that coalition forces came in and it was a pretty pretty quick war. Good history should have accurate dates, should have accurate times, should have accurate geography, should have the right people associated with it, and should have an accurate storyline. And when you look at the history of the Bible based on secular history, you find over and over again that the Bible is good history. The dates are accurate, the times are accurate, the people are accurate, the storyline is accurate, the geography is accurate. Not only that, but much of the Bible's history that was disputed at one point by secular historians, and I know this because I, I studied history, was disputed by secular historians. Over time, discoveries come out, archaeological discoveries that say, you know what? Actually, the Bible was right. We thought the Bible was wrong. It turned out to be right. Here's one example of it. For years, historians said the, the, that, that the Bible is wrong for asserting that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Because they said during Moses' day, the people were pre-literate. They could not read. They could not write. So there's no way Moses could have written the first five books of the Bible. Well, years later, archaeologists uh, began to dig, and they found tablets, and they found scrolls, and they found writings and writing utensils from Moses' day. And they said, well, if they've got tablets and scrolls and writing utensils, they must have been literate. So you know what they said? Oops. Guess we were wrong. Guess the Bible's right. Let's just move on to the next thing. Well, how about this? The Hittites. If you've read uh, in the Old Testament of the Bible, there are various places where it talks about the nation of the Hittites. For years, archaeologists could not find any evidence that the Hittite nation ever existed. So they said the Bible is bad history because it's got wrong people in wrong locations. We've been to that location. It's just not there. And then in 1906, Archaeologists uncovered not only the capital of the Hittite nation, but 40 other Hittite cities in the exact location where the Bible says the Hittites set up home base. So you know what archaeologists said and historians said? Oops, guess we were wrong. Friends, this happens over and over again. I I could literally go on a list, but we only have about a half hour together. But know that in the places where the Bible says something and, and history hasn't proven it to be accurate yet, the Bible keeps proving itself to be historically accurate. People, places, time, geography. If you read the New Testament, uh, the authors, they're so incredibly tedious about geographic locations, going up to Jerusalem, going down the road. They, they, they're not talking north-south, they're talking up and down. Um, ge- uh, height, geography, all these types of things. Over and over and over again it happens. And it blows my mind considering this fact. The Bible was written by 40 different people, on three different continents, spanning a time of over 15 centuries. 
and the facts and the dates and the times and the storyline line up perfectly. So I want you to go back up. Is the Bible good history or bad history? By the way, whether you're a Christian or not, you should, you should know what the Bible claims to be true. And if you're a Christian, especially because you're basing your life on this book, and so it better be good history. Is it good history or bad history? The second, the second thing that this person said is it's bad history, but it's even worse science. And I just want to say one thing right up front. I feel the same way sometimes. Yeah, I feel the same way. The Bible was not written primarily as a science book, but it should have good science in it. I am a a student of the Bible, not a scientist. And the reason why students of the Bible, they're called theologians and scientists, seem to line up on different sides of the argument is because they start from very different places. Theologians start off saying, God said it and God can do anything. Therefore, whether we can prove it or not, it exists. At some point, we will prove it. That's where theologians start. Scientists say, I'm not going to believe it until I can prove it and reproduce it in a laboratory. So they start from two different places, and that's okay. That's the nature of science versus the nature of theology. But it's there's a reason why there's a tension and a pull between science and the Bible oftentimes. But did you know that over the last couple hundred years, science and the Bible are increasingly coming closer and closer together as opposed to further and further apart? I just want to give you a few examples of that. When we talk about creation, when we talk about the origins of the universe, scientists have said for years that given enough time, and enough space and enough chance, it's possible to form something out of nothing. It could, it could happen. We can't prove it yet, but it could happen. That's our theory. But some scientists now are finally admitting that it would take a long time for nothing plus nothing plus nothing to make something. It would take a long, long time for nothing plus nothing plus nothing to make something. So scientists, even some committed atheists today, they say they're starting to come together, are saying there could be a connection between the story of creation and the Big Bang Theory. There could be a connection. They're saying maybe, just maybe, there was someone or something that ignited the activity. There was a big banger in the Big Bang Theory. Someone had to get it going. Just maybe. So now the creation story is not so much a crazy myth that you have to turn your brain off to believe, but actually an explanation of how the world came into being that science and theology can get around. Here's another example. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we find out that God created man from the dust of the ground. And there have been centuries of speculation where scientists and historians have argued and said there's no way man came from the ground. There's no way. And yet recent scientific uh, discoveries have shown that the basic elements of the human body are consistent with the elements of the earth. They're consistent. Again, we're not totally lined up, but instead of going further away as we learn more in science— Science and the Bible are actually coming closer together and saying, well, just maybe God could be right. The same basic elements that are in the earth are in man. So God could have created man from the dust of the ground. I'll give you one more, one more. Genesis one twenty four says that God created living creatures and that they will produce their own kind. That means fishies will make more fishies, birdies make more birdies, monkeys more monkeys, people more people. That's, that's kind of the way that, that goes. And for 200 years— evolutionary scientists who have a bent towards evolution have said, no, 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 you can go from lower life form to higher life form. Birdies can make fishies and and monkeys can make people. That's just the way that it works. 
uh, about 10 years ago, a, um, a paleontologist who's well-renowned, he's an atheist, he does not believe in God. He died about 10 years ago, uh, not believing in God to the best of my knowledge. So he's not a Christian guy who's biasing things. He's a non-Christian guy who taught at Harvard, who taught at NYU, who wrote for uh, popular science. He's a brilliant man. His name's Stephen Gould. He's a paleontologist, and he wrote this. He said, species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on earth. They don't go from lower to higher, or from higher to lower. They don't experience any directional change during their tenure on earth. They appear in the fossil records looking much the same way they did when they finally disappeared. So, so scientists may still believe in evolution and try to figure it out, but in terms of the fossil records, what we've discovered, they're saying that just didn't happen. And science in the Bible, which you would think would be going in this direction, as we learn more about science, are actually coming this direction. So we've got to ask the question, is the Bible good science or bad science? Good science or bad science? As we learn more in science, are they going this direction or are they coming this direction? A serious study of science is forcing us to adopt a position that the Bible's held for thousands of years, that, that living creatures reproduce after their own kind, that they just do. And the final question is this. Is the Bible really terrible psychology? Is the Bible really terrible psychology? Uh, I have a friend who is um, not a Christian, and he, wrote, he sent me an article that he found about a week and a half ago, and it, basically the, the article said this, that the new religious wave in our society says that God is a distant moral deity. He's somewhere over there, maybe, and his goal is for us to basically be happy. That's his goal. He wants us to be happy. Is that good psychology or bad psychology? Well, let's look at it. Let's look at it, because the truth is, the Bible should be good psychology. Does the Bible, does the Bible turn people into head cases? Does the, sometimes, yeah, we'll get there. Does the Bible instruct people to do unhealthy things and live in unhealthy ways? Does it undermine marriages and families? Does it, does it create mental and emotional havoc in people's lives? And someone said sometimes, and I want to say yes and no, yes and no. When someone teaches the Bible incorrectly, it absolutely can do all of those things. All of those things, which is why God says, be careful if you teach the Bible because you will be held to a higher standard because you can mess with people's lives using the truth in this book. But listen, don't blame the Bible for that. Blame the person saying the words. That'd be like driving down the freeway one day and having someone drive in the opposite direction and blaming the freeway that that guy's driving at you. Don't blame the freeway. Blame the guy who's driving. Don't blame the Word of God. Blame the person who's teaching it incorrectly. Is the Bible good psychology or bad? Like I said, my friend, my friend said, well, it, this is the new, new psychology, the new um, faith of our generation. And I think on a lot of levels, people do buy into what he said, that God's a distant moral deity who wants me basically to be happy. Well, let's dig into that a little bit. I would say any psychology that puts human beings at the center of the universe and says the main goal is for them to be happy is terrible psychology. Terrible psychology. Because when I'm the most important person in the universe, when, when you're nervous about the universe revolving around my head, crashing into you, you know what happens? It makes me do anything I can do to get anything that I want. In a marriage, what happens when you think, I'm the most important person in this marriage? Is it good for your marriage or bad for your marriage? When your kids are playing together and your one child says to the other child, give me that toy, I want that thing, me, me, mine, mine, is that, that's them saying, I'm the center of this relationship. Is that good for them or bad for them? It's bad for them. It alienates them. It hurts them. It destroys them. That's bad psychology. That's bad psychology. Any psychology that says anger should be vented on everyone at any time because that's just how I feel. That is bad psychology. 
Any psychology that says guilt doesn't matter, that's bad psychology. Any psychology that says divorce doesn't have any consequences or that children should just raise themselves, that is bad psychology. Give a kid a lollipop, he'll be great. That's bad psychology because it's hurtful. It's hurtful. And I can tell you this, if I thought for a second that any word in this book was bad psychology, my conscience would not allow me to teach it. You've got to understand, my wife sits here and listens every week. My best friends sit here and listen every week. I know that many of you are basing your life around the truth that you find in this book. My conscience would not stand up if I thought this was bad psychology, but I have no, no uh, question of conscience when it comes to this book because this book teaches good psychology. It says God's at the center. And while God wants good things for you, he doesn't just want you to be happy at the cost of anybody else. He wants you to be holy because that will make your life better. The Bible is good psychology, and here's how I know it. In Psalm 34, the author says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. And I can tell you this, I've never had anyone come up to me and say, you know what, Kevin, I have spent my life getting to know God from the pages of this book and living the life that God called me to live. I spent the last 10 years doing it, and I regret it. I've never had anyone say that to me. And it has ruined my life and ruined my marriage. And ruined. No, no, no one's ever said that to me. But you know what? Plenty of people have come up to me, come into the church for the first time, and they leave uh, the service, and they're bawling, and they say, Kevin, I lived a life where I thought it was all about me and all for my good, and it destroyed my life. How do I get my life back? And you know what I do? I point them to this book, because this book is good psychology. So I have one question as we close. One question. What are you basing your life on? What are you basing your life on? Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, and these words of Jesus's, not only the things he said when he walked on the earth, but this entire book, anyone who puts, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain came down, and the flood came up, and the rain came down, and the flood came up, and there... I had like this much time in kids' ministry before I got kicked out, and that's one of the songs I remember. It's very exciting. And the rain came down, and the streams came up, and the wind blew, and they beat against the house, but it did not fall down. Why? Because it had been built on its foundation on the rock. So where are you building your life? What is your true north? Everyone builds their life on something. What are you building yours on? If you're a Jesus follower, I hope you're building your life on this book because it's good history, it's good science, it's good psychology, but more than that, it's the story of God. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, or you would say, I I don't base my life on that book, at least not yet, I want to ask you, what are you basing it on? And and I'm just hoping, I'm hoping you have a good answer because you get exactly one shot at this life. And what you base your life on has not only implications for you and your family and your job, but it has implications for eternity. What are you basing your life on? I would challenge every single one of us to base our life on this book. Because it's not just good history. It's not just good science. It's not just great psychology. It is all of those things, but primarily this book is a love story. It's a story about a God who created you and knows you and has a plan for your life. It's a story about people who have walked away from God of what the Bible calls sin, the things that we think and say and do that are hurting us, that are hurting those that we love, that have separated us from God. And then it's a love story. This whole book is a story about how that God did all the work necessary to get back to a people who had run away from him because he loves us, because he loves us. 
The entire Old Testament points towards Jesus. Did you know that? It tells stories about Jesus. It tells prophecies about Jesus. It gives examples of what life's going to look like with Jesus. Then we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the stories of Jesus himself. And then after that, we have these letters to the churches about what it looks like to live in light of the fact that Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, gave his life on a cross, and rose from the dead, giving us the forgiveness of our sins. Everything in this book points towards Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about good history. It's not about good psychology. It's not about good science. Primarily, this book is a book about Jesus who loves you and has a plan for your life, and wants to walk in relationship with you. And we can base our life on the God we find in this book. And I want to ask you, have you made that decision yet? And if you haven't, today's your day. Today is absolutely your day. This is the best day you could say yes to Jesus. Yesterday would have been the best day, but yesterday's gone, and you've got today. Today's the best day. Tomorrow, the next best day. Next Sunday is seven down on the rung. Today's the best day. With everything in me, I just, I've been praying for you that you would say yes to Jesus today, that you would live your life based on the God you find in this book. So we're going to pray right now, and I'm going to give you a chance to say yes to Jesus today. Today, to pray a simple prayer of commitment to God. Say, God, I want to take this journey with you. So would you join me? Let's pray together. As we pray right now, as our eyes are closed and we're sitting in the presence of the living God who knows you and loves you, and I got to tell you, he could not love you more than he does right now. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows what you did last night. He knows what you thought this morning coming in, and he loves you. As we sit in that God's presence, I want you to know he's inviting you to know him and to love him and to follow him. If you're ready to make that decision to experience life with your creator, today's your day. You can repeat the simple prayer. Either whisper it out loud or say it in your head and mean it with everything in your being. Just repeat the simple prayer of commitment. Say, Lord Jesus, today I say yes. Yes, I want to have a relationship with you. Yes, I want to get to know you. Yes, I want to be forgiven by you. Yes, I believe that you love me so much that you gave your life on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin so that I could be we forgiven We hope you enjoyed this week's God. message. You can find more information about New Life so would you come including into my contact life? information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks would for listening. fill me with your Holy Spirit? And would you show me what it looks like to walk every day from this day forward into eternity? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.